Short Rounds. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser. Hope you don't have a terrible case of the Mondays today, but if you do, here's a short round to hopefully cheer some things up. Last week, I released episode number 41, The Kaiser's Lions. In that episode, we talked about World War I in Africa, mainly the land campaign, the army operations of Paul von Leto Vorbeck and his opponents. During that episode, I specifically pointed out a side drama that I was going to split off into its own short round because I just couldn't fit it in. Like, seriously, I'm writing this episode stuffing 20 hours of history into a two-hour bag, and I was just like, what if I just put this part into its own short round? Which, to be fair, I'll be honest with you guys, is how I solve a lot of problems in this podcast. Today's short round is the story of an Imperial German Navy warship, the SMS Königsberg, and the British Navy's quest to find her and sink her. You might be saying, James, you've played this song before. Isn't this just episode 26, South Atlantic Death Ride all over again? Well, this is a similar story. But this story will take place on an African river delta, a jungle cruise, if you will, though I am not lucky enough to have Emily Blunt as my co-star. Or Catherine Hepburn. But we'll get to that. Anyway, let's talk about ships, planes, crocodiles, hippos, hunters, sailors, and a German cruiser trapped on an African river. Tally-ho. As always, this ain't just mil- history, but military history. Dark and bloody stuff awaits. The podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. This episode shares all the same sources with my bigger Kaiser's Lions episode, so check that source post on unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all my sources. And of course, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers and sailors and random civilians they pulled out of the middle of nowhere. This gets weird. Kaiser Wilhelm II dreamed of turning Germany into a world power, and the Kaiserliche Marine, the Imperial German Navy, was the centerpiece of this dream. The Kaiser had a lot of ships, second only to the British Royal Navy, which was, you know, way more impressive than Hitler's Kriegsmarine ever dreamed of being. Like, the World War I German Navy is much bigger than the World War II German Navy. And one of those ships, one of the Kaiser's ships, was the SMS Königsberg. She was a light cruiser with a crew of 322, weighing about 3,400 tons, with 10 10.5-centimeter guns as her main armaments. Königsberg wasn't a big girl. Compare her with the German dreadnought battleship SMS Bayern, which had a crew of about 1,200, weighed 28,000 tons, and carried 8 38-centimeter and 16 15-centimeter guns for her main armament. Yeah, these are absolutely different classes of warship. Uh, Königsberg was small by European standards. But when the Königsberg arrived in German East Africa in June 1914, she was the most powerful German warship in the Indian Ocean. A big fish in a little teach, if you will. Königsberg, commanded by Captain Max Luf, had arrived in the colony for a two-year tour of duty, just to show the flag, basically, show that the German Navy could send ships to Africa. But what this meant was that when World War I popped off, the Königsberg would be all alone in the Indian Ocean dominated by the Royal Navy. Last year, I did a full-length episode called Episode 26, South Atlantic Death Ride. This episode talked about the German East Asia Squadron, commanded by Admiral Maximilian von Spee, which was stranded in the Pacific when World War I began in 1914 and had to 
avoid the Royal Navy and try to fight its way home. The Königsberg would find itself in a very similar position, on the run from the British Royal Navy, trying to survive for as long as possible. But while von Spee's squadron died off the Falkland Islands in December 1914, the Königsberg survived seven months longer. The story of how the British eventually destroyed the Königsberg is the subject of this short round. The Königsberg's home port was Dar es Salaam, the main port city of German East Africa. The German Navy's standing orders were for its overseas vessels in the event of war to do commerce raiding, basically fight a guerrilla war on the high seas until they were run down and sunk. But the colonial governor of East Africa, Heinrich Schnee, declared that Dar es Salaam would be an open port, basically neutral, if and when war broke out. This meant that the Königsberg couldn't operate out of the port or use its facilities. So when World War I loomed in late July 1914, Captain Luff grabbed as many supplies as he could and fled Dar es Salaam. He made a break for it in the middle of the night trying to get out before the British trapped him in there. But British intelligence habitually kept tabs in the location of every major foreign warship just to be ready in case something crazy happened, like, say, World War I. So when Captain Luff left Dar es Salaam on July 31st, 1914, he had a few British warships following him around, just keeping an eye on him. But the Königsberg used a rainstorm to evade her pursuers. So on August 5th, 1914, when word reached Africa that the First World War had begun, the Königsberg was off the British radar. She had vanished. She was on the lam. Captain Luff knew that every British warship in the Western Indian Ocean would be looking for him. He wanted to do what damage he could where he could, just like Admiral von Spee and his squadron. On August 6th, one day after the declaration of war reached Africa, the Königsberg captured a British merchant vessel called the City of Winchester. This ended up being the excuse the British needed to attack Dar es Salaam, since the Königsberg had sailed from that port, meaning it was no longer neutral in the British eyes. But now Luff needed a hiding place, a place to lay low, out of sight, until he could slip out and strike back. He just needed somewhere to hunker down while the British moved somewhere else so he could slip out and do some damage. Luff decided to hide on the Rufiji Delta, a jungle maze of channels and mangrove swamps at the mouth of the Rufiji River, about a hundred miles south of Dar es Salaam, inside German East Africa. A German survey ship had charted the delta just before the war, and they had found four channels deep enough for the draft of the Königsberg. So on September 3rd, 1914, the German cruiser passed over the sandbar of the Simba Uranga branch and entered its new home, the untamed jungle of the Rufiji Delta. The Rufiji Delta might have been a good hiding place, but it wasn't exactly an Airbnb. <laughs> the marshes, mangrove trees, and swamps were riddled with insects, including enormous mosquitoes, along with other forms of wildlife, like monkeys, snakes, and the ever-present crocodiles. One sailor, suspended over the ship's side to help camouflage the hull, had his leg bitten off by a crocodile and died soon afterwards. This was a no-joke dangerous place to hide sometimes. But the sailors did camouflage the Königsberg, attaching trees and branches to its masts and funnels, covering it in greenery and netting until you could barely tell it's from the surrounding jungle. The Kaiser's African Queen seemed like it was becoming a part of Africa. Luff intended to use the Rufiji as a constant hiding place while he snuck out every now and then to sucker punch the Royal Navy. 
On September 19th, the Königsberg left the Rufiji to go on the prowl. She ambushed and sank the British cruiser HMS Pegasus in the harbor of Zanzibar the following morning, and this raised a massive alarm back in London. First Lord of the Admiralty, Sir Winston Churchill, was obsessed with tracking down and sinking every single German warship at large. Admiral von Spee's East Asia Squadron, currently having vanished into the Pacific, was problem number one on his list, but the Königsberg was now problem number two. Churchill ordered no effort be spared in finding and sinking the Königsberg. He gathered up every British warship in the area and set them hunting for Captain Luff and his fugitive vessel. The flotilla was literally called the Destroy Königsberg Squadron. British warships scoured the coast of German East Africa, desperately searching every inlet and harbor for their prey. But the Germans were having problems too, the biggest of which was maintenance. The Königsberg required a serious overhaul to its boilers, but the facilities to do that were in Dar es Salaam, which was now off-limits to the ship itself. So get this, the Germans dismantled and removed the boilers and carried them over land, over 100 miles of jungle and swamp, to Dar es Salaam, they cleaned them, and then they brought them back. This was incredible backbreaking work, a magnificent and almost impossible accomplishment. The Königsberg's engines would be spick and span by November 1914, but by then, it was too late. On October 19th, the British captured German documents showing that coaling vessels had been sent to the Rufiji Delta. Haha, <laughs> found you. Captain Sidney Drury Lowe of the HMS Chatham took this intelligence and ran with it, sailing off to the suspected German hiding place on the Rufiji. But he had one big problem. Unlike Captain Luff, he had no charts of the Delta, so he couldn't go upriver without running the risk of beaching his ship. So he set some, some of his soldiers to go climb some palm trees and see what they could see. One of the sailors saw something. He was like, hey boss, that tree is moving in like a horizontal pattern. Trees do that, right? Drury Lowe was like, no, no, son, they definitely don't do that. That is a ship's mast. Captain Drury Lowe had found the Königsberg. More British warships arrived to take up stations outside the Delta, and they began a constant surveillance of the river mouth. All that effort to get the Königsberg's engines running again, and now the Kaiser's African Queen was trapped in the Rufiji. But the British celebrated for about five seconds before realizing finding their enemy was only step one. She couldn't get out, but they couldn't get in. It would have been possible to just leave the German ship there to rot, but Winston Churchill was not having it. He said, I don't care what it takes. Get up that river and sink the Königsberg. What followed would be the Battle of the Rufiji Delta, the Royal Navy's eight-month quest to sink the Königsberg, possibly the longest naval battle in history. It began on October 30th, 1914, when Captain Drury Lowe's HMS Chatham fired a few long-range shots at the Königsberg. But there's your trouble. These shots fell way short, they were inaccurate, and the Königsberg just moved to a new hiding spot within the Delta. The Rufiji Delta was a swamp maze with multiple different outlets and multiple different channels, and the Germans knew all the good hiding spots. The British knew the Königsberg was in the Rufiji Delta, but that's like knowing your toddler is hiding somewhere in Walmart. Helpful, but not enough. This is what makes this battle so interesting to me. It was like a puzzle box. For the British to sink the Königsberg, they would have to figure out her current position within the Delta, current position, not her previous position, bring heavy naval guns within range of her, 
and find a way to direct the fire of those guns so they could actually hit her. A multifaceted military problem. Detect, engage, and destroy the Königsberg. First step was figuring out where she was. To do this, the British turned to a very new technology. Airplanes. Keep in mind, manned flying machines were barely a decade old. It's 1914. The Wright brothers made their first flight in 1903. It has been 11 years. Game of Thrones is older to us than flying was to them. (laughs) Finding an airplane on short notice was not easy either. The Navy finally found a young man named H. Dennis Cutler, a member of the Royal Air Club, doing demonstrations down in South Africa. Cutler wasn't a military guy. He was like a hobbyist. But within a few days, he and his plane were on their way to the Rufiji to try and locate the Königsberg. And Cutler's plane, guys, would not pass a single safety inspection today. This was some redneck bull. Cutler's seaplane, or a hydroplane as he called it, was basically made of matchsticks and bedsheets. This is like something a dude would build in his backyard with a lawnmower engine. It might have been the single worst aircraft ever used for military purposes. But it flew. Kinda. On his first flight over the Rufiji, Cutler got lost and his radiator just exploded. He crashed into the Indian Ocean. The Royal Navy found him hanging out in an island, cheerful as could be. They fished his plane out of the ocean, fixed it with the radiator from a Model T Ford, and he took off again. Let's be honest, this guy had cojones. Cutler made three more flights in his death trap. On the last flight, he spotted the Königsberg. He's like, oh my, oh my gosh, there it is. But on his way back, his plane fell apart like a kid's science fair project, and he fell into the ocean again. But the Royal Navy somehow found another plane for Cutler, and he made three more flights, each time noting that the Königsberg was moving farther and farther upriver. But on the final flight, the engine gave out, and Cutler crashed for the third and final time. The British found his plane, but they didn't find him. He was presumed dead. But Cutler's sacrifice was not in vain. He had managed to locate several of the Königsberg's favorite hiding spots. It was a start. Don't worry, guys. This story actually has a happy ending. Cutler had been taken prisoner by Paul von Lettow Vorbeck's Schutztruppe. He was freed in 1917 when von Lettow left his prisoners behind in his break for Portuguese East Africa. Dennis Cutler lived until 1963. Life on the Königsberg itself was growing nastier and more demoralizing by by the day. They knew they were trapped by the British, they couldn't escape, and it was only a matter of time. Captain Loof decided to cheer himself up by doing some hunting. He managed to kill a hippopotamus, but it turned out that this was a mother with a calf. Dang it, Loof, you killed Fat Grey Bambi's mom! The Germans brought the baby hippo back to the Königsberg, but despite their best efforts, the baby died two weeks later. Don't adopt wildlife. Christmas and New Year's 1914 went by with a little bit of celebration, including some trash-talking between the two sides. On New Year's Day, the HMS Fox transmitted a message to the trapped Königsberg. A happy New Year. Expect to have the pleasure of seeing you soon, British cruiser. The Germans responded. Many thanks. Same to you. If you want to see us, we are always at home. German cruiser. The Germans had not been idle during all this reconnaissance and messing around. Paul von Lettow Vorbeck lent Captain Luf a Schutztruppe detachment to help defend the Rufiji Delta, and they set up machine gun nests in the jungle. The Königsberg's smaller guns were removed and in place to fire on any vessel heading upstream. 
The British tried to send multiple torpedo boats and light vessels upriver, but they were driven back by these defenses. This wasn't going to be easy. Like I said, the Germans couldn't get out, but the British couldn't get in. As his sailors and marines started to waste away from typhoid and malaria, Captain Luff started to realize that his ship was probably never leaving the Rufiji. He sent a hundred sailors and marines, about a third of his crew, to join the Schutztruppe. The rest of them hunkered down as 1915 began, and the British stepped up their quest to destroy the Kaiser's African Queen. At one point, there would be no fewer than 24 warships waiting outside the Rufiji just in case the Königsberg made a run for it. Luf considered it, and Paul von Letho Vorbeck encouraged him to try to escape, but in the end, the Königsberg never did make a run for it. She would die in the Rufiji. The Royal Navy finally coughed up two Sopwith seaplanes, two Royal Marine officers, and a maintenance crew of 16 men to replace Cutler and his redneck hobby plane. The new pilots arrived in February 1915 and began regular reconnaissance flights. The Sopwiths proved to be unsuited to African conditions. The glue holding their wooden propellers together literally disintegrated in the tropical humidity, so they had to order new planes to replace the Sopwiths. By April, the pilots were taking pictures of the Königsberg with box cameras, and at some point, they apparently hand-dropped bombs onto the warship. This right here might be the first airborne attack on a warship in military history, though it would be a long way from this kind of makeshift stuff to the likes of, like, I don't know, Pearl Harbor and Midway. Now that the British could keep track of the Königsberg by air, they needed a way into the Rufiji Delta. They found a South African elephant hunter named Piet Pretorius, one of those tough, wiry men who live on the frontiers of civilization. Pretorius had his fair share of run-ins with the Germans, some deserved, some not. He had escaped German captivity after being shot through both legs and crawling miles through the bush to safety. The dude was nearly impossible to kill. No one knew the territory of the Rufiji Delta better, and no one hated the Germans more. So the Royal Navy hired this big-game hunter to do a one-man recon of the Rufiji. Pretorius spent weeks stalking the jungle around the Delta, often in disguise as a local African, often within eyesight of the German defenders, who were like, oh, that's just another local. Throughout the first half of 1915, the elephant hunter mapped out the waters of the Rufiji. He even got close enough to observe the Königsberg's crew drills and report back on her condition. An elephant hunter stalking a warship. This campaign gets weird. So now that the Royal Navy could spot the Königsberg from the air, and the Pretorius had mapped a path through the waters, the British had to get close enough to sink her. But the Rufiji was far too shallow for most heavy warships, without having charts, which the Königsberg had and the British didn't. And the German fortifications could chew up any little boats before they got close. So what to do? Back before 1914, the Brazilian Navy ordered a few shallow-draft armored gunboats from English shipyards that they intended to use to patrol the Amazon River. They had been nicknamed Monitors because they looked a lot like the famous USS Monitor of American Civil War fame. When World War I began, the British confiscated the Monitors before they could be sent to Brazil. The British intended to use them for, like, coastal defense, and they, they used at least one of them, I think, in the Gallipoli Campaign. The Brazilians had also ordered a bunch of lavish decorations and furnishings for the warships. They looked like a freaking cigar parlor on the inside. I don't know what the Brazilians are up to down there. But all this, the the British stripped all this out and readied them for real war. 
The monitors were renamed after the English rivers, Humber, Severn, and Mersey. The monitors were accidentally the right tool for the job, shallow enough to get up the Rufiji Delta, tough enough to withstand the German defenses. Their six-foot draft would enable them to cross sandbars that would beach a larger warship, but the two six-inch guns that each ship carried were a match for the Königsberg's 10.5-centimeter naval cannons. The British decided to send the Severn and the Mersey down to Africa so they could stalk and sink the Königsberg. Since these were totally unseaworthy warships, like meant for river and coastal operations, absolutely not fit for ocean going, they had to be pulled by tugboats from England through the Suez Canal and down the Red Sea. By July 1915, the monitors were off to the coast of Germany, East Africa. Their crews were talking with the British pilots and studying Piet Pretorius's maps of the Rufiji. It was time for the end game. On July 6, 1915, the Severn and the Mersey made their way up the Rufiji Delta, running a gauntlet of fire from the German shore defenses. They opened fire on the Königsberg at 6.48 a.m., and the Germans responded with a salvo of their own. Now, these ships did not have direct line of sight on each other. They couldn't see each other over the trees. That was one of the biggest British challenges. Even if they could get within range of the Königsberg, they had no way of knowing if their shells were hitting her. At least, they hadn't. The British had these Royal Navy seaplanes now, which were buzzing over the jungle canopy, hand-dropping bombs on the Königsberg, and signaling to the monitors, like sending them back information by signal or flashlight, like, hey, up 22, or left 17, to report on where their shells were falling. The Germans, on the other hand, had dudes in hilltops, and inside, and hanging up, up on tops of trees with binoculars, sending messages back to the Königsberg to help her adjust her fire. So these two ships are firing at each other, both playing a game of telephone so they can figure out where their shells are landing from other observers. Both the shallow draft monitors traded round for round with the stranded Königsberg, lobbing their fire over the mangrove trees. Both sides scored hits on the other, but the monitors were much more fragile. Mersey had one gun knocked out, and the Severn ran aground briefly, though she managed to break free. By mid-afternoon, the monitors had fired 635 shells and only scored four hits. The British pilots were almost exhausted. They'd been flying for almost 12 hours. The men were tired, the guns were overheated, and the tide was sinking. The two battered gunboats withdrew back to the mouth of the Rufiji. The Königsberg still lived, for now. But one of the gunboats had blown a hole in her hull below the waterline, and several compartments were filled with water. Captain Luff knew his days were numbered. He ordered the ship's important papers evacuated and prepared for the monitors to return. They did just that five days later on July 11, 1915. The Königsberg fought back once again, but the Severn, on its eighth salvo, scored a direct hit on the German vessel, and the airplane pilots were signaling like, yes, right there, that's the spot, do that again. Within an hour of their first shot, the monitors just had targeted and zeroed in on the Königsberg, and they fired shot after shot after shot, and within an hour, the planes observed a series of explosions aboard the German ship, and the monitor crews saw a small mushroom cloud on the horizon. The guns of the African Queen fell silent. The monitors kept pouring shells into her until the planes reported that the cruiser was completely ablaze. The two gunboats returned to the cheering of the British squadron and the congratulations of Admiral Herbert King Hall. 
after 255 days, October 30th, 1914 to July 11th, 1915, the Battle of the Rufiji Delta was over. The Kaiser's last surface warship outside Europe was no more. But the Kaiser's African Queen would continue to haunt the British for the rest of the First World War. In his final report, Captain Luff said, SMS Königsberg is destroyed, but not conquered. The remaining crew members of the Königsberg salvaged everything of value before detonating one of the torpedoes inside the tube, scuttling their vessel. The German cruiser settled on the bottom of the Rufiji. It did not sink all the way. It was not submerged. It was just sort of resting in the river, a big surface wreck still clearly visible to anyone passing by. And as I described in episode 41, the sailors repurposed the Königsberg's guns as artillery pieces for von Letho's Schutztruppe. African laborers transported the 10 10.5-centimeter guns to Dar es Salaam, where a railway workshop outfitted them with wheels and carriages. The Königsberg guns would see service as heavy artillery until the last one was abandoned in 1917. Most of the Königsberg sailors became Schutztruppe officers and NCOs, including Captain Luff himself. The remaining Königsberg sailors surrendered to the British in 1917, along with the last of their guns. The German warship had been shooting back long after she was supposedly sunk. Only 15 members of the original 355-man crew lived to see Germany again. To be fair, that's a higher survival rate than most of Maximilian von Spee's warships. They got sunk off the Falklands, so they should count themselves lucky. The Königsberg herself sat in the Rufiji Delta long after the war, an occasional source for scrap metal, until 1966 when her skeleton finally sank into the riverbed. The remnants of the Kaiser's African Queen lie in a muddy river in Tanzania to this day. Three of her guns survive as museum pieces in South Africa, Uganda, and Kenya. The old girl had a good run. Much like Paul von Letho Vorbeck on land, the Königsberg had given the British a buttload of trouble way beyond the actual threat she posed. It had taken 27 British warships, the efforts of British sailors and amateur pilots, a South African big-game hunter, and two unlikely warships confiscated from the British Navy to finally put an end to this single German cruiser that wasn't even that big of a deal. There is a 1951 film called The African Queen, based on a book called C.S. Forrester, starring Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. This movie is not about this story. It's mostly a, fic- mostly a fictionalization of the Battle of Lake Tanganyika. There is another movie called Shout at the Devil, starring Roger Moore and Lee Marvin, which is based on the sinking of the Königsberg, with Lee Marvin serving as a fictionalized version of Piet Pretorius, the big game hunter. The African Queen is the better known movie, despite not being about this event, so I used it for the title of this episode. There. I'm a fraud. You got me. I didn't have a good title. Everything else I tried was really dumb. And that's what I got. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I do not recommend adopting baby hippos unless you can properly feed or care for them, especially if you just shot their mama. Maybe don't shoot their mama in the first place. Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources and some additional commentary. I'm always available on Facebook or on Twitter and you at UNK Soldiers Pod. You can email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. And that's a wrap. That's what I got. See you same place, same time next week for another full-length episode of Unknown Soldiers. <laughs>